0: Would you please open an app or a Bible uh, to John 14? It's on page 901 in the Bible that's in front of you. And we're going to to start today and kind of finish next week this whole concept of a relationship with God. But before we get into that part, uh, we're going to start near the end of chapter 14 and then come back to what Josh just read. Have you ever thought about how Jesus deliberately and strategically limited his role as a teacher. Look at verse 25 of chapter 14. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Why were the disciples able to accurately remember what Jesus said? Well, there there's several reasons. When uh, we were missionaries, I would come home about every two years, and and I was invited to preach at 10 to 12 churches each time. And I would usually, almost all of them had two worship services, so I would preach the same sermon in in all churches twice. So I'd preach the same sermon about 20 to 26 times. I, I liked that kind of know where all the jokes are. and um, But my older three children, who are now in their mid-30s, had to sit through it all. And after years of doing that, they, one of their most favorite things now is to quote back to me some of the stories. Sometimes the concept, it's it's often the illustrations, but they, they do kind of... Uh, um, a warped version of it where they will deliberately kind of change the ending or change something so that it means exactly the opposite of what it's supposed to. And then they'll laugh. They they like to poke fun at dad that way, and it's kind of fun. But they remember. Over 20 years later, they remember. I believe Jesus often repeated messages, perhaps not repeating them precisely word for word, but using the same stories and concepts over and over, That is what most itinerant preachers do. An example would be you compare the Sermon on the Mount to parts of Luke chapter 6, and you'll find all kinds of things that are very, very similar. And like our older children having to listen to each sermon 20 plus times, the disciples probably heard Jesus say the same stories and concepts multiple times, and that was one thing that helped them remember. Also, We don't realize the power of a trained memory. They could not afford to have the written scrolls of what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And so from the time they were quite young, little Jewish boys were taught to memorize and develop their memory. Now, granted, the disciples were not star students, okay? They were fishermen. But they had still probably much more powerful memories than we do and more adept at remembering. In addition, Jesus would speak in ways that were designed to help people remember. He would say something like, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. What he's doing there is is that's one type of what we call a couplet. They're very prominent in Proverbs, but he says something, and then he says it again in another way, and that reinforces memory and helps. He did that a lot. He also used stories a lot and were much better at remembering stories than abstract ideas. So all of these factors would have improved their memory. However, the Bible also says that the disciples were kept from understanding when Jesus would tell them, especially about that he was going to die. And then later they remembered after he had died. I think the most plausible explanation is that the Holy Spirit kept them from understanding, kept them from remembering And then here in chapter 14, what does it say the Holy Spirit will do? Help them to remember and teach them all things. Now, now I want you to turn the page to chapter 16 just briefly, then go back and look at verse 12 where it says something similar. And Jesus repeats different concepts throughout this last evening with his disciples. He says in verse 12 and following, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is Jesus' plan. This is how Jesus' followers are going to receive all of the information that God wants them to have the information that we need. The Holy Spirit was going to guide them into what? All the truth. And then they were going to write a reliable record of that. They would remember, they would be guided, they would learn. Jesus was a master teacher when he wanted to be. Thousands of people followed him. They said he taught with authority. They hung on every word. He was persuasive. If the Son of Man, if the Son of God had explained everything clearly and persuasively, then people would have understood that he was divine, the creator of all things, the second person of the Trinity, perfect, holy, and worthy of their worship. So instead, Jesus said things like, this is from Matthew 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then in Mark chapter four he says, He did not, it says, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Well, if he explained everything to his disciples in private, why didn't they get it? Because the last night we see there's still there's all kinds of things they still have not understood. They didn't understand they were to try and lord it over each other. They didn't understand that that the Messiah was not going to violently overthrow the Romans and kick them out. They didn't understand that the Son of God was actually going to be the Lamb of God who had to die for sins. They didn't understand that seeing and knowing Jesus meant seeing and knowing the Father. Now, many people have misunderstood Jesus down through the centuries. Today, many think that his primary mission was to teach us how we should live. And so they'll sometimes praise him as a great teacher and then kind of latch on to some of his more popular teachings like do unto others as you would have them do unto you or judge not that you be not judged or love one another as I have loved you or my peace I give to you. But often then completely forget Jesus's unpopular teachings. No one comes to the father except through me, as we saw last week. Whoever is angry with his brother shall be liable to the judgment. The judgment. Whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. You don't hear people talking a lot about those. When they say, Jesus is a great teacher, but just a man. Jesus did some great teaching, but he deliberately left many important truths out or he was unclear, or he was obscure. Because his primary mission was not to teach us how to live. The law of Moses and the prophets had already done that. They'd given us all the instructions we needed to know how to love God and how to love our neighbor. But because we're flawed and often selfish, our response to those instructions was to rebel against them, actually to desire to do more of what they told us not to do. Paul puts it like this in Romans 7. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You see, we we did not need a Savior to explain better how we could live, how we should live. We've been given those principles and failed miserably. We needed a Savior who would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, who would live the perfect life we all fail to live, guy in our place taking our punishment for us, and then rise again, conquering death. That's what we needed, and that was Jesus' mission, not more explanations. If Jesus' teaching had been more complete, more clear and persuasive he would have convinced people that he was god in the flesh and if they were convinced he was god they would not have crucified him if they would not have crucified them he would have him he would have failed to do what he came here to do to make pardon and getting right with god available to anyone who wants it absolutely free jesus did everything necessary for us to be pardoned And be made right with God. So that puts us in a bit of a strange position. What should we expect when we study the teachings of Jesus? Well, he speaks in parables, and so it's not always clear what he means. Now we do have the advantage of the rest of the New Testament, of explanations from the apostles. And we know the rest of the story, what Jesus was doing, many things that they did not do. Even at the time of Jesus' death, there's all kinds of things that the apostles have not yet been taught by the Holy Spirit that they will then pass on to us. So we have that benefit, and we can look back and say, oh, he's talking about this. Whereas at the time, people were probably just scratching their heads. What should we expect when we study the teachings of the apostles? They are often more clear. See, Jesus is no longer keeping his identity a secret, what scholars call the messianic secret, why he called himself the son of man instead of the son of God. He didn't want them to know that God was there among them, then they wouldn't kill him. But now Jesus wants to be clear about who he is, about the gospel, what it means to become his follower. His plan was to have the Holy Spirit inspire the apostles, teach them what they need to pass on to us, Help them remember what Jesus had said and then write it down so that we would have it. Important scripture to know. We'll put it on on screen. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, Jesus, in his teaching, taught that the scriptures are reliable. At one point, he actually said the scriptures cannot be broken. And he taught in such a way that showed he believed they had authority. When the apostles become the leaders of Jesus' church, they are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and their writings are authoritative. They are reliable. They even refer, Peter even refers to the writings of Paul as scripture. So we should expect that we will learn some important truths from Jesus' teachings in the Gospels. And he delegated to the Holy Spirit in the Apostles the responsibility of completing and clarifying the truths God wants us to know. That is why the clearest explanation of the Gospel is not in the Gospels. It's in Romans. The clearest explanation of the spiritual significance of all those sacrifices and so forth in the Old Testament is in the book of Hebrews. The clearest explanation of the marks of the characteristics of a Christian is in 1 John. If Jesus had not sent the Holy Spirit to guide the apostles into all the truth, there is a a lot of very important information that we would not have had. Now, every culture... Or nation has positive characteristics and negative characteristics, things that are certainly not true for everyone in that culture, but may be typical. For example, Paul actually writes to Titus that the people of Crete are all liars. It's a cultural generalization; doesn't mean every single one was. One of the character flaws that is typical of most Americans in our day even most followers of Jesus, is a lack of submission. A lack of submission to God and the authorities he puts in our lives. For example, people will often say things like, well, I like the teachings of Jesus. You know, love your neighbor, turn the other cheek, judge not, but I don't like the Old Testament. Or I don't agree with Paul, what Paul says about sexual morality or what Peter says about how wives relate to their husbands. The writings of the apostles are just as reliable and authoritative as the teachings of Jesus. Which, by the way, we got from the apostles also, as they remembered them and wrote them down. There will always be concepts that bother us. That's true in every culture and every epoch. Submission, which bothers most Americans, is not about believing God and obeying him. When we like what the Bible says and we agree with it, submission is about obeying when we don't like it or don't yet agree. So you should expect that sometimes the teachings of the apostles are more clear than the teachings of Jesus. Jesus did that on purpose. Okay, does all that make sense? Okay. I'm go with that making sense and move on. Um, Everybody loves it when you talk about submission. Now we're going to look at what is arguably perhaps the most central concept of all of Christianity. And it's here in these passages. It may be why some feel like this is the heart of the Bible. Again, John 14 on page 901. I think you're going to want to follow along. App or a Bible. Remember the context. Jesus knows he's about to die. He's reinforcing important concepts before he leaves. They've been arguing about who's the greatest. He's washed their feet. He's told them one of them is going to betray him. They're all upset. Then he says he's going to leave and they can't come and Peter's going to deny him. He gets into true greatness, that that comes from being a servant, that true glory comes from suffering for others, that true peace comes from knowing your future with God, trusting God, and also a supernatural gift that Jesus gives. And then last week, that the true God, exists in a mysterious trinity father son spirit they're all holy they're all divine they're all eternal and not created all worthy of worship there are three persons we say in one god the trinity is a mystery even the greatest theologians have not understood the trinity no one has god has only told us so much and that's his prerogative now it says in first corinthians that in the next life i will understand fully even as i have been fully understood so we have Good reason to hope that we will understand the Trinity when we see God face to face. I I don't think that verse means it is certain that we will understand every single mystery, but I think it's reasonable to hope that we will. But in this context then, that night, the disciples are shocked, they're worried, and they're confused. So, that being said, what is perhaps the central concept christianity i'm going to start in verse 15 in chapter 14 verse 15 and and i I really encourage you to memorize where to find this because it's central if you love me you will keep my commandments and i will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you okay so you understand the plan jesus will ask the father the father will give a helper the holy spirit But the disciples already know the Spirit. How do they know him? It says, because he dwells with them. Now, earlier, Jesus had said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It seems like that would probably be true of the Spirit as well. If they've seen Jesus, they've seen the Spirit. They've been living with Jesus, so the Spirit has been dwelling with them. They've even worked alongside the Spirit as they they have gone out and cast out demons. But look at the promise at the end of verse 17. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit will be in you. Now look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. I will not leave you as orphans means Jesus will not leave us alone. Remember what it says at the end of Matthew's gospel, what we call the Great Commission? Would you you say it out loud with me and read it all of us together? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always. Jesus is promising that he will be with us. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, does the Father, does Jesus, do they love everyone? Yes. But God loves... God loves even the most awful people and desires that they take advantage of the pardon that Jesus has purchased. But God is pleased when someone believes what he has said and loves him back. They then experience a relationship, a relationship of mutual love and affection and fellowship. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. We will come to him and make our home with him. We just heard Jesus say that the Holy Spirit will be in them and in us, And now that the Father and Son will also be making their home with us if we become Jesus' followers. This is perhaps the central concept of Christianity, that God wants to have a loving, gracious, fulfilling relationship with you. Why does God want this? Now, ever since I was a child, I have been attracted to the opposite sex. I never went through a phase where I thought girls were icky. I, I always imagined that one day I would fall in love and marry a wonderful woman, so I was kind of always looking, always ready to meet girls who might be the one. Even after I became a follower of Jesus, my ideas about how to relate to a woman were pretty stupid and selfish. It took me several years for me to become submissive to what God teaches in the bible about how to relate to women i met janice we became really good friends she had a boyfriend and i was still learning how to be submissive in this area we didn't start dating until three years after we met we married 20 months later recently celebrated 41 years of marriage with five kids four grandkids we've been all through all kinds of good and bad we're opposites in a number of ways god has used her to change my attitudes my desires to make me more like jesus than i would have been without her She's my best friend, and I would feel incomplete without her. Now, the Apostle Paul says that marriage is a metaphor, a picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. He's the groom. The church is the bride. We are the bride. We are in that relationship. Now, it's very interesting. Paul was single. He'd never been married. And for those of you who are single, whether you've been married or, or not, what Paul is saying, is that Jesus wants to have a relationship with you that's as good or better than a great marriage. Actually, um, John Newton, who wrote uh, Amazing Grace in some of his letters to a young couple, writes that you have to be really careful with marriage because it become an idol. It becomes something that is so powerful in your life that you don't concentrate on God. Paul says, I wish everybody were single like me so they weren't distracted. So marriage is not always, you know, the, the thing that helps you become more like Jesus. Jesus helps you become more like Jesus. And you can have a very fulfilling relationship with God if you're single. Sometimes there's advantages to that. So, but the metaphor is still there that Paul says. And Paul says, knowing Jesus is better than anything. It surpasses everything. But the metaphor is still there that marriage is supposed to be a picture of the kind of love relationship that God wants to have with us. Now, why does God want this? Well, he wants this because he loves you. He actually thinks you're interesting. Because he sees the amazingly interesting person that he will make you into if you turn your life over to Him, He'll make you more like Jesus. He, he knows that without Him, you won't have this wonderful relationship. You'll miss out. You'll be incomplete. You'll miss out on the central purpose of life, knowing and loving God. What's the first and greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's been there right from the beginning. That's what God desires deeply desires to have a love relationship with you. He's not trying to take something from you. He's trying to give you true life. He wants it so much that he died for you. And he is extremely glad that he made that sacrifice for you because he says you're worth it. And I know that many people struggle to think they could possibly be worth that. God says he's really glad. What's it like to have God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living inside you? Once we believe God and love him back and turn our lives over to Jesus, God makes his home with us. He's inside of us, and we will sense that something has changed. We will sometimes feel his presence. We will often feel this peace that Jesus has promised us. When we experience godly grief because we have rebelled, then we'll repent, and we'll have this forgiveness flood into us and a sense of closeness to God. When we study the Bible, we will often feel this strong conviction. These, this is true. This is God speaking to us. When we pray, we'll sense that God is with us. Now, different people experience God's presence in different ways. And some definitely experience it more strongly than others. Some are almost what we would call mystics. that It's, it's amazing their experience of God. Some only have a strong sense of God's presence occasionally. Some people are given spiritual gifts that are very powerful and help them to experience God's presence. Do you want what God wants? Do you want to have God living inside you, guiding you, nudging you, always with you? Do you want the supernatural peace that Jesus offers? Do you want to feel forgiven and loved and valued by God? The Apostle John in the book of Revelation says, is in his vision of Jesus, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. If you want what God wants, if you are attracted to Jesus, if you are ready to turn your life over to God, then open the door. Invite him in. Receive God's pardon. Make Jesus your Savior and your king. Stop trying to earn it or do it on your own. You can't. Now, if you've already done that, then you know that this is the most important thing in the world for thousands of people who live all around us. People who are not yet convinced about Jesus. They have not opened that door and invited him in what could you do this summer to reach out to one or two of them that you know, that probably that you love, and take some of the love that God is pouring into your heart and pour it into theirs? Would would you please make a plan this week and ask God to guide you to one or two people who are currently unconvinced about Jesus? Have them over for dinner. Go to a movie with them. Listen to them. Just show them that you care. No matter what you think they think about Christians, don't let that intimidate you. Just love on them.